0: A strange thing to say to a mother who has just given birth, isn't it? Imagine going to your friends or your sisters right after they have a baby. Oh, and by the way, a sword will pierce your own soul too. I think though, of all the things that were said during the story of Christ's birth, this may be one of the most important that was said. We are in the midst of Advent. Advent is that time of year when we reenact the waiting, the waiting for the coming, Advent is an ancient word, that, or Advent, isn't. Advent comes from an ancient word meaning the coming or the arrival of the promised Messiah. And as part of our Advent observance, I want to examine Mary's life in light of this strange prophecy of Simeon's. Because I think we will discover that the value of Mary, beyond the obvious, beyond this, the person who gave birth to God, the value of Mary is her spectacular, unshakable trust in God. Which, if we understand it correctly, can encourage us, can inspire us, it can comfort us, it will certainly challenge us, and it can motivate us perhaps more than any other example in scripture. So, Romano Guardini, writing about the moment the angel Gabriel told Mary she would give birth to Jesus, said this. In that moment, Mary was confronted with something of unprecedented magnitude, Something that exacted a trust in God reaching into a darkness far beyond human comprehension. Living in this world, we will all come or have already come face to face with this kind of darkness. Right? And God knows many of us right here in our little community that are here today and people that are not here today have endured extreme darkness of suffering over this past year. 2017 has been quite a year for a lot of us here at Canaan. This is why I chose to re-examine Simeon's prophecy in light of our own community and all the suffering and the darkness that we've endured this year. Because I think Mary's own journey can help all of us during these times. But before we get into his prophecy, let's ask a question. Do we trust God? Do we trust God? I mean, like ask yourself that question. Do we trust God? You see, Jesus said this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. However, the fullness of the meaning of this word believe goes way beyond a mere mental exercise. It's not simply mentally affirming a doctrinal statement. If even any part of it means that, I don't know. But it definitely doesn't mean that in whole. Okay? It is instead about trust. Trusting that God loves us. Okay? It's, so, here's a question I think that can help illustrate this idea from both sides. Do you believe the earth is round? Okay? Everyone, I hope, says yes to that, right? But here's the thing you're simply affirming a fact. It's all you're doing. There's no trust involved in that statement. You're correct, and you will get an A on the scientific test. But there's no theological exams, though many of us pride ourselves in that. So many of us pride ourselves in getting an A in the theological exam, right? But there isn't a theological exam. When we get to heaven, there's no exam. Okay? However, there was a time in history when, if you answered yes to that question that the earth was round, that would have had to do with trust. That time in history when everyone was being taught the earth was flat. Then some guys get into a boat and sail to the edge of the horizon believing, trusting, the earth was round. See the difference? So here's my question in light of this statement of Christ. Do we trust God loves us? Now, this question leads, unfortunately, or fortunately, to one of the major problems with Christianity. With Christianity. For Christianity is the only religion that asserts God does love us. Unconditionally. So... Here's the problem with having to trust he loves us. It leads to this massive problem called God and suffering. If God really loves us, why do we suffer? Now, there have been countless volumes that could fill library after library on this subject. And I'm not, that's not the point of this morning. The point of this morning is we suffer. Okay? So this book that we call our scriptures, I believe asserts that God loves us for who we are. And he wants us to love him for who he is. However, in order for our love to be real, which is what he wants, real loved or not not forced or bought love, he cannot manipulate us into loving him. So God cannot overwhelm us with his indisputable presence or with miracles and gifts that solve all of our problems. For how would either of those things cause us to love him freely and not just follow him for the benefits? Right? Right? Think about it. If he were to show up in all his majesty and power, who wouldn't follow him? Like, who wouldn't? Think, think about that. If he just had his own Mount Olympus, and every now and then he stepped off and created all this havoc and showed us how powerful, who's not following him? Maybe that's why he showed up as a baby in a barn. Maybe. And if every day we were to wake up to a pile of money and a promise of good health, if we were to remain in relationship with him, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? People stay in relationships for a lot less than that. I would stay in relationship for a pile of money and a promise of good health. No matter how much I didn't like the person, I'd stay in relationship. If that's what my life looked like every morning. Who wouldn't? C.S. Lewis, who's a much more brilliant man than I... Questions if that would be love. And he writes on this this way You must have often wondered. Oh, no, that's probably still Jesus. There it is. Is that C.S. Lewis? There we go. Awesome. You must have often wondered why God does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and in any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his forbid him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. And that is where trust comes in. We have to trust that God is a God who loves us more than life, even when all our circumstances sometimes suggest the opposite. Here's where the rubber hits the road. Let's face it, so often our circumstances do not fit in with our idea of a loving, caring God. Bad things do happen to us. Entire seasons of our lives feel as if God has abandoned us. We're often left wondering if God cares when he never seems to answer our prayers. Trust becomes so difficult during these times, doesn't it? That's why our witness to each other during those times can be so powerful like what we've all had the privilege of watching Rich go through his cancer this year with a profound trust that God still loves him despite that blackness and darkness. And many others sitting in this room and some who are not here today who witness to that trust. But it's difficult. And this is exactly when we turn to appeasement theology. Notice what I did there? We've been talking about it all year, and we're still talking about Advent. That was good, wasn't it? (laughs) Appeasement theology, the idea that we can and need to appease God because he really only loves us when we behave a certain way or believe certain things. Otherwise, he hates us, and that must be why bad things are happening to him. The reason we've been looking at this all year in light of our study in Galatians in light of what we just did for a number of weeks on the prodigal son is because this is the ultimate lie that we are all embracing. Even after years of Christianity, you know it's deep inside of you, right? Deep inside of us. I'm 52 going on 53. I've been following, trying to follow Christ most of my life and it's still un—it's being exposed to me all the time. This appeasement theology that I am so addicted to. It's the great lie, it's the ancient myth. God doesn't like you. But if you do the right things or you believe the right things, He will. You know why it's so insidious and it's so dangerous? Is because if believing the correct things or doing the right things gets God to save us and love us, what's the mechanism of that salvation? It's not God. It's us. Think about it. If you can claim that God loves you because of what you believe or what you do, then who's the mechanism there? It's not grace. It's us. And that's what we love. Us on the throne. Right? Us to be in power. Us to be in control. This is the myth. And this is why belief went from meaning trust To simply being correct in our beliefs. And we have 100,000 branches of Christianity all arguing that they're the only right ones. And getting in battles over it. And that's when we become the keepers of the faith. Because everyone needs to be enlightened to what's really true. Appeasement theology is deadly because we're not God and we can't save ourselves. And this is why we talk about it all the time at Cana. It's about God's grace and his love. I want you to think about this minor problem. Beside the fact that the idea that believing, if we believe the correct things make God happy enough to stop hating us, all right, then we're all in trouble. Number one, it puts us on the throne, but number two, here's just a very classic example. How many different opinions are there in Christianity that we are supposed to believe in order for it to be correct? Who's got the perfectly correct one? And don't get me wrong, orthodoxy, right opinion, is important. But the fact of the matter is the thief on the cross didn't have any orthodoxy. Long before there was a Bible, people didn't have any orthodoxy. God shows up in the flesh and says, Do you believe I love you? See, trust. Trust is different. Trust really believes that no matter what happens, God loves us. And this is exactly what Mary understood and why her story can be so helpful to us. Now, we all get, I think, let's look at Mary now. That's, that was an introduction to this. We all get that Simeon was prophesying about Jesus dying one day, right? But I suggest to you the crucifixion was only one more piece of suffering in a life full of suffering. And if that's all Simeon's talking about, then there's very little relevance for us. I don't think any of us are ever going to watch our child be crucified. Now, some of us have watched... Some will see their children die, and that's the worst, worst utter agony in the world. But for the rest of us, our suffering and our pain follows different lines, right? So what I want to do is I want to consider the times we find Mary in Scripture after Jesus was born. Because I think we will see the sword was piercing her heart long before her child died on the cross. And maybe we will find comfort and inspiration in watching Mary. So, the first thing that happens after Jesus is born, they have to flee to Israel. I mean, no, they're in Israel. They have to flee to Egypt and live as refugees. Think about that. Like, no, think about that. Don't just let this be a static piece of information in the scriptures that you've heard from the time you were little. At least 10 years they lived as refugees. Refugees where no one wants you, does that ring a bell? Do you know today there are 65 million people living as refugees in this world? 65 million people. Think about what it means to be a refugee. We all have homes. These are not bad people. They are you and I who one day someone decided we shouldn't still live in our homes. This is Mary's life. Then, when they finally find it safe to go back to Israel, they go to Israel and there's this great festival going on. They go to Jerusalem, the the city, the great pilgrimage festival. And the city's overcrowded with, with pilgrims and tourists and people selling wares and Romans and all sorts of colorful characters. Probably some very dubious, and Jesus goes missing. So the other day I'm shopping in Target and... I finished, I got my bag, and I'm starting to walk out, and I went to the wrong door, so I had to go to the other side of all those carts, and as I'm walking, I notice this thing on the corner, this movement of the corner of my eye, and I look, and there's this, like, this little three, she might have been four at the most, and she's ducking down, hiding in the midst of the carts from her mom, and I'm thinking to myself, dad, this can't be good, and sure enough, I turn around, and the woman's at the checkout, and, and it's this, you know that, terror. and I just say, oh, she's right there, and she's like, oh. That terror, we've all had that momentary loss. Well, he's lost in this massive city and Mary's life isn't so good right now. But it gets worse because when they finally found him, he's just in the temple. But he says this after, you know, obviously a natural reprimand. This is what he says to them. Oh, didn't you know I would have to be in my father's house? Can you imagine your child looking at you and re- telling you, you're, you're not my parents? Oh, Mary, that sword just piercing her soul, that darkness. Then he gets a little older and there's this wedding that they all go to. And he distances himself from her again. Now, we've studied this story before, and that's a story I want to revisit. Actually, I love that story. But to sum up this interaction, basically, this is Christ asserting his divine heritage and his loyalty to God's plans while reminding Mary of her ultimately nominal role in her life in his life. How, how painful is that for a mom? Like right now, we're just in the normal stages of a 17-year-old boy becoming his own. And that is a painful thing for mom. It's painful for me too, but it's painful. Until we remember that's why we have children because we're all here, right? We don't live at home, most of us, and, and uh, we want them eventually. But in those transitional times, it's painful. To be reminded of it, that's going to hurt that's going to hurt. Then in Mark, we have this one. This is, this is tough. Mary goes down to see him, and it's so crowded she can't get in, and they go and tell him, hey, your mother's outside, and your brother's, and he just looks at everyone inside and says, no, this is my mother, and these are my brothers. How painful would that have been for Mary? I'm sure he went out to receive her, but the hurt would have already been felt as he continued to put distance between himself and her. So, we can see, I think, this is not at all what she would have expected, right? When she gave birth to this child. I'm sure all her dreams and expectations were continually shattered as circumstance after circumstance was shrouded in pain and suffering. Doesn't the world feel like that sometimes? Our dreams and our expectations just get shattered. Where we are today is not where we thought we would be. One of my favorite lines from, from uh, all of Bruce Springsteen's massive library is, he sings, is a dream alive if it don't come true or is it something worse? It's that raw human emotion of living in a fallen world. Imagine the dreams and expectations Mary had when the wise men came and worshiped her baby and then what her life looked like and in Luke's gospel I don't know if she was here but if she was or if someone told her about this scene Jesus was saying these things one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed but he said on the contrary (laughs) blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it it's a beautiful thing But as a mom, as a mom. And then finally in John's Gospel, the pinnacle of Mary's suffering, she's at the cross. What could be more painful than this? But there's more here, if you read the story closely, that just adds to it. In her moment of profoundest suffering, when all she wanted was a word of comfort, her son continues to direct her away from him. Yes, this is sort of a son looking out for the mother, but not really. Dear woman, here is your son, John. And John, here is your mother. Like Simeon said, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary's life was not lived on Easy Street, right? It was painful. She understood real everyday sorrow and disappointment and hurt. But despite it all, she trusted God. Here she is, at the end of it all, part of the group that is praying. Constantly in prayer. And I want to make a side note before I wrap up. We've talked about this many times at Canaan, but I want to remind everyone. This kind of trust that Mary's exhibiting is not without doubt. And let's be sure of this. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive, and I'm sorry if you've been taught that. It's one of the most damaging things to Christianity, is the idea that certainty is, is faith. Nope. Certainty is affirming something that's true. This is Faith. We believe it's true. Like Dave and I talk about all the time. Resurrection is our singular hope. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe. This isn't mentally affirming some facts. In order for there to be faith, there must be doubt. That's the point. That's what faith is. And I'm sorry if you've been led down a road in your life in which certainty... Is, is been replaced for faith believing in something long enough can make us certain of our faith and that's beautiful but that's entirely different than the way faith in Christianity is often presented faith in Christianity when I was growing up was presented in a light switch I put it on because I trust the lights are going to come on no there's no trust there There's electricity. When I do this, electricity happens and the lights go on. Faith is believing that when we die, life goes on. Faith is believing love wins even when all of our lives are wrapped up in hate and misery. That's faith. No one's come back. At least I haven't talked to anyone that's ever come back. Oh, there's movies and books about seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but no one's come back. This is faith, this is hope, and it's beautiful. And this is what Mary understood. See, the story of Christmas is ultimately about faith. Mary's faith in the angel's promise of a child despite the fact she was a virgin, that's faith. Mary's faith that the child was the son of God despite the fact that she had to give birth to him in a barn? Mary's faith that he was the Messiah, even though the religious leaders hated her son and called him a liar and killed him? Simeon's faith. We're going to look at Simeon's prophecy on our Christmas service. And I hope you're still here. That's why I'm staying in Simeon this year. It's so powerful. And not his prophecies, prayer. And he says, now you can dismiss your servant for I've seen the salvation of Israel. What? You saw a Baby. A baby that didn't do what I think you thought the baby was going to do. But he did. Mary's faith that God loved her and that she was blessed despite a life of constant suffering. Think about that. Mary loved God for who God is. And in that love she was able to say this. 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 From now on, all generations will call me blessed. This Christmas, my prayer, is that we too would be like Mary. Not without doubt. Not without questions. But with faith. That despite the circumstances of our lives, we would love God for who God is. And trust, really trust that God loves us. This is what I mean, this is what it means, I think, to be a Christian. To look around, and despite the fact that we seem to have been forsaken, to still love God and know we are loved by God. This is the faith that brought the Christ child into the world. This is the faith that continues to bring the Christ child into the world. This is the faith that will allow us to say, regardless of circumstance, from this time, all generations will count us blessed.